Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Volref Feed. I'm Rich Rupp, your podcast host, product trainer, and chef here at the Volref Company. And as always, in tandem to bring you this show, I'm with my co-host and digital media specialist and best producer anywhere, Justin Pearson. <laughs> hey, Rich. What hey. is up, my friend? Oh, not too much. Just uh, getting ready for another great episode of the yeah. feed. Yeah. I don't. I don't believe you when you say not too much, though, because that's that's just not true. Well, we we worked <laughs> together a little this week, <laughs> and uh, the old "if it can go wrong, it will" uh, certainly played in. But you know that keeps us going. That keeps our days full of activity. <laughs> uh, no doubt. You know, interesting. I you know yeah. helps with that neuroplasticity. You know, when you're constantly having to troubleshoot something, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that certainly was the case. It could go wrong, it seemed to, this week. Equipment-wise, not other things. But I had yeah. equipment, as you know. Just things weren't working right. So yeah. Anyway, we're we're here today, recording our feed. This is the good day. This is a good time of day for us. So, And a good sh- and another good uh, guest lined up today. Oh, yeah. Always chef. love it when we have chefs on. Right, right. We, um, you know, chefs, and anyone in our industry, of course, but chefs tend to be, if any of our guests the ones that can be a little more edgy and a little more fun and a little, a little more uh, candid about their days and I for me it's easy to relate because obviously I've done that position and walked in those shoes so uh, the prep work for me today is just a little less and I get to relate a little bit easier to some people sure well but you know in the food service industry they are the boots on the ground you know mm-hmm. they're the ones that are constantly you know we just talked about we're faced with with challenges and trials and and having to troubleshoot they're the ones that are really making things happen and it, it really is fascinating to hear about how they are handling all the the various situations and and difficulties of the industry um, that we're faced with you know now more than ever so uh, which brings up a very interesting point about our guest today um, who is an executive chef, a uh, new executive chef at a university. And that's just brings a, a bunch of, of unique interactions that you're, you're forced to take with new personnel, you know, implementing your style, evaluating what's working, what isn't working, and really just building that, that trust. And then uh, doing it all in, in a covid post covid world you know where um we really haven't addressed it that much but students are back full time and Mm -hmm. man what a ramp up effort you have to do not just with your your workforce but with your supply chain which is everything is just strained right now yeah no we've uh you know chef today uh richard hetzler and you say new, it's just meaning he just took that position over. He's been a corporate chef in other locations. Correct. But yes. You're right. The whole newness of a, a new job, new environment, new sets of equipment, something he just walked into recently, and then the newness of nothing being the same more or less from where he was pre-COVID to what we're doing now. But he'll roll with it, I'm sure. It'll, it'll be interesting mm-hmm. to hear how he's doing it. But I, I always remember... Like in mom and pop type small businesses, when you're the chef, one of the chefs, or you know, you're, you're responsible for everything. Anything that needs to get done, including 
equipment repair and maintenance sometimes. <laughs> oh, or, yeah. You've been up on the roof, you know, oh, fixing <laughs> yes, I have. stuff and then mm -hmm. <laughs> underneath and tearing things open. And Right. And then you go to corporate environments and, you know, they call maintenance and it's just a different different way that, that you get to do things like that. A bigger corporation gives you more of those resources to use. But it'll be interesting to hear from him when he comes into a new environment. How does he approach it? You know, what are his first, you got to have a little checklist, I'm sure, of things you got to get in mm. line that you need a certain way. And that'll be something that'll be fun to talk to him about, especially when you throw in the Trump card of COVID on this whole thing. Mm -hmm. It's just got to wipe out a lot of what you've known in the past. Right, exactly. So it'll be fun to talk to him. Yeah. You know I wonder if he looks at like any of the equipment that they have and, you know, before he takes the job, he's like, no, this thing's got to go. Or, you know, how does he evaluate his skill of his, of the chefs? Is there anything there that he can do pre, you know, accepting of the job? I wonder how that is. I've never known. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I'm sure once you're in the kitchen, you can, determine within you know a minute or less than if somebody's really competent at their job there's there's no faking it in the kitchen that's a fact that is a fact maybe they let him have a little look inside the kitchen before he accepted the position kind of overview but then again that's that maybe didn't happen he took the job i think it was we have notes here that it was july of this year wasn't a whole lot of activity i'm sure going on in the immediate months before that, so yeah, that's true. But you know, you, you bring up an interesting point too about about equipment and chefs have their their go to equipment. And what's yours if you were to step into a kitchen and they didn't have something? What what would that one thing be for you? Ooh, there's so many. Oh, well, yeah, go down it, the list. It's not <laughs> well. So no, it, it really is driven kind of by the menu. Yeah, oh, that, think... that makes sense. Yeah. I think a lot of it is menu driven, and um, yeah, that that to me is the, the big thing. Is is what do you need? Do you need a do you need a combi oven? I mean, they're so versatile, right? But a range, a good old fashioned range, can do so much as well. Tilting the tilting skillets or brazers, um, people use those for everything, everything. Boiling stocks to uh, frying uh, pancakes in the morning, you know, bacon and eggs in them. They they use them for everything, so they're that maybe is the key to a good piece of equipment, right? How versatile is it? How many different ways can you use it? How valuable it becomes to you? So Yeah, really justifies its existence in more than one way. Right. And then, you know, you, you throw into that mix, like, you know, we always talk about countertop equipment because it is so portable. You can literally bring it in for the service period and then move it out. You're not invested into a big floor-mounted whatever. Um Countertop portable equipment makes life a lot easier when you can just plug and play very simply versus larger pieces that aren't as easy to move in and out. So when you're putting a yeah. big piece in, versatility, or again, if you're very menu-driven, you got to nail this particular product over and over and over again, you need a specialized piece of equipment. Something. Mm -hmm. We'll get to him on that. Um, I'm sure with chefs we'll talk a little bit about his start and how he got in the industry. That's always fun to hear from them. I wonder if you'd be a, a well, I got a job at 14 washing dishes and <laughs> somebody didn't show up. So I got pulled into cooking and here I am. Yeah, if we had a later. nickel for every time, right? <laughs> right. Well, that's a good story. It's, it's a great story because with 
so many people starting that way, there's infinite paths that go off from that, that humble beginning that branches off in so many different directions. And that's what's truly interesting about more or less starting in the same spot and then going wherever mm -hmm. your imagination and desire takes you. Exactly. And somewhere along the way, I'm sure there's someone that gives you a little nudge into maybe an area of interest that you have. Well, like for, for sure. me, pastry, no way. We've talked about this. I cannot. <laughs> not my thing. <laughs> not my thing. Uh, measuring uh, and patience. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could have had uh, Julia Child next to me when I was so many, you know, 20 years old and telling me I had to go into pastry. No, it wouldn't have worked. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have that passion, though. That's that's really the drive, you know. That's I, yeah. it goes for anything, I suppose. But if it isn't there, then, you know, it doesn't make sense to to head down that direction. Yeah, I am always impressed, I guess, when I read stories of people who at some point have this moment where they say, this is what I wanted to do all my life, and I'm going Oof. for it. This is, this is where I'm going. I, I loathe people like that. I mean, not really, loathe. but, you know, it's just like, uh, it's probably just more envious and, and jealous because I never really had that growing up and everything. You, know, you always had that one friend's like, I'm going to be a doctor, and then, you know, they go through college and med school, and they're a doctor, and everything is perfect in their world. And you're like, oh, you suck, man. You know, <laughs> just to have that, that drive and that focus. And uh, I don't know, it, maybe it's a curse too, but you know, I've, I floated around forever. Just like, you know, I had lots of interests, but there wasn't anything that, that really just spoke to my soul and, you know, went through college, you know, for way longer than a person should, um, without becoming a doctor. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> And then, you know, I finally just through happenstance, chance and luck, I landed in, in the field that I am, you know, becoming a photographer and videographer and then radio and podcasting. And, and I, I love what I do. It took a long time, though. So mm -hmm. I think that's common for a lot of people, particularly in the food service industry is you got to try a lot of things to find out what really speaks to you. Mm -hmm. Right. I know my stepson, I was... Uh... From oh, about fourteen on, I told him I think he'd be a great attorney because he loves to argue, <laughs> and uh, I think he'll be a he's and he's in law school, right? So and mm -hmm. uh, I think he'll be a great defense attorney because he's the kind of guy that'll look for that little loophole in the argument that you're presenting, and well, but you know this part of it didn't make sense or whatever it is. So <laughs> yeah. we'll see if that uh, pans out or not. But well, hey, after your story, my story, I think we should hear our guest today. Let's get to Richard Hetzler, who is currently the corporate chef at George Washington University. Chef, welcome to the Volrath feed. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm my actually pleasure. the district chef, though, not corporate chef. I haven't made it that high up in the world yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. District chef. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe, maybe we could just dive right into that because you know, we were having a little side conversation. And we were curious, how does the structure work when you work for a larger uh, provider uh, like Aramark or Compass or something like that, and then yet you work for a university? What is that like? You know, Are you kind of an employee of the university too, or do you go and do and say what the parent company says? If there's a new construction, are you consulted for equipment and stuff like that? What... What's the dynamic between the university and uh, and Compass for you? 
Yeah, I think, you know, so so the role, you're really kind of a liaison between Compass Group and the client. So obviously, uh, we have a report to, which is our client, but then we also have our parent company who, you know, kind of funds everything and, and, and works, you know, obviously with the university on a day-to-day basis. So we're kind of that boots-on-the-ground type team that are, you know, taking the vision that the client has and then kind of figuring out how it works in, in our world and in Chartwells and in higher education and then, and then figuring out the happy meaning of blending those two together and putting it together, you know, so you have a, a successful food program for the students and something that, you know, the university is, is happy with in, in the same process. So we've kind of got multiple hats and multiple roles. So we have our, you know, our client role, we have our, our student facing role, which is obviously, you know, one of the most important ones in making sure that we're, we're providing good food, but then also providing what our, what our clients are looking for. And then, Making sure that we're also covering what our, you know, what our parent company ex- expects and, and making sure that we're kind of meeting some of the, those other goals and standards that we need to do on a daily basis. Hmm. Okay. So in your week, do you talk mostly with the client, I would imagine, right, as far as how things are going or what you want to accomplish? Or can you give us some sense of how often? Are, is it 50-50, do you think, or is it a, more so to the client? Yeah, so I think, you know, uh, most of my interactions, I, I would say it's probably, you know, 60-40 probably is where it's at, you know, depending, and if, hopefully if it's going like that, I think we're doing something right, because if you're, you're dealing, you know, on a day-to-day basis with your client, especially from the culinary world, it's uh, typically, you, you know, something's maybe not right, or there's some, some tweaks that need to be made to the program, or some things that, you know, that you, you might have some opportunities in, so I think um, it's probably about a 60-40 um, obviously, I think we're, you know, my role is definitely more of a, a higher level supervision role. You know, you talked about some of the, you know, development type things, looking at bigger picture and, and how do we grow. You know, George Washington, for example, is a, is a unique opportunity for, for us within Chartwells and within Compass is that they were a retail driven food program and now they're going back to a residential program. So we're designing, you know, five new dining halls for them that'll be opening up in the next year. Um, Mount Vernon, which is the campus that we're on right now, is, is the first one that we opened up, um, obviously coming out of the, the pandemic, but um, we're designing five more brand new ones. So that's where then they'll utilize myself and our corporate team and corporate chefs and really start designing these kitchens, layout design programs, um, what the, what those kitchens are going to look like and then how we're going to, you know, how we're going to design them to feed the students and, and the population that we have here on campus. So the 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 facility that itself is owned by the client. Correct. The fixtures in the facility, the the equipment, the various everything from smallwares to the combi oven, that's by the parent your company, or is that by the university as well? So it just depends on some. Most of the the, the equipment is owned by the university. Some some contracts are written differently, so it really just depends on how the contracts are written and how they're structured. Um, but in most of your university settings, you know, most of the equipment, the kitchens and things are owned by the, the, the individual university or the individual school where you're working. Um, and then obviously then there's, you know, the, the sub kind of contracts that go into who maintains and how, how equipment's fixed and repaired and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, but yeah, most of it, most of the equipment is there. And then obviously depending on how contracts are structured, there's, you know, there could be an initial, you know, things for small wares, purchases, things of that nature, depending on how they're shared. So when when they there's a university that has a need for a chef and they your company is the company that is uh, 
the contract for that university. How does that process work? Do you apply for that job or does your company say we have a need, you want to fill it? Or do they say we have a need, you need to go fill it? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of all, all of that, right? Yeah. <laughs> Just depends on where you're at in the company, right? Okay. Um, you know, I think, you know, there's, depending on, on what that contract is, obviously, you know, there's a skill set that has to go into it with any, any, any culinary position, really just looking at, you know, from a, you know, running a $2 million kitchen to running a $40 million piece of business that's, you know, you're not necessarily running a kitchen day to day, but you're managing chefs that are managing kitchens. So, you know, I think as a company, we just, you know, we, we look to find the best people for the best job. And then we look to, you know, obviously start promoting from within and find out, you know, where those opportunities lie. And then, you know, depending on that contract and everything else, you know, take it to the next level. Obviously, in this day and age, you know, staffing is, is probably one of our largest challenges. Um, you know, tell you hiring chefs right now is very challenging, let alone the hourly staffs. But, you know, finding salary managers right now is even is, is challenging. We were, you know, I have an executive chef at this dining hall here. And, you know, it took probably about a month and a half to find somebody just to fill the, fill the role here. So it's a... Uh, Staffing continues to be an ongoing challenge, both hourly and in salary positions as well. So, do you manage the student employees, or are they just kind of handed to you? So we we try to as much as we can in our university settings get as many students in because they become our best advocates for our food programs and getting them out. Um, so it really just depends. It's kind of a case by case basis, and you know, as they're looking and as their needs arise, then we kind of try to fit them into the program as best we can. Well, coming back to equipment, you said you have some some new construction going on. Um, Rich and I, we've we've talked before about um, go to equipment, and every chef kind of has their 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 go to equipment, and and expanding upon that, uh, the menu really kind of dictates what what equipment is is needed. But for you, for Chef Richard, what what are some of your go to pieces of equipment when you come into a new construction? I think it's it's looking at anything that you have that versatility. So rationales all do a good job. I mean, any of that stuff that you know you can get into that combination steam, you can get into the you know to the heats and then you know the you know, regular convection ovens and stuff like that. I think those are, are integral in any part of any kitchen because it gives you such versatility in what you're able to do. Um, you know, looking at kettles and the, the, the you know steam jackets versus tilt skillets and different things to get you the different volumes and sizes you need depending on what you're cooking at. Um, to me, I think it's essential in any kitchen as a smoker. You know, I love to have you know the vacuum sealers because I just think they, they make life so much easier for you know packaging and putting stuff away and making sure you know just just use of, of everything in the kitchen. So those are some of the go tos that I kind of like to have in every kitchen. Yeah, those vacuum sealers. You know, we've we've got a couple of those in our line, and uh, the in chamber machines are you know so versatile, and they 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 can help you in so many ways. Uh, just simple things like I always talk about the ability to take a stock and freeze it in a package that's about an inch and a half thick and, and basically flat. How much easier that is to thaw when you need it in a hurry if you yep. need need to make a new soup or something. Um, how often are you using your uh, vacuum pack machine or is it things like that? And do you have a hassle plan in place then for that? And so typically, so in the, in the DC market, obviously, if you're doing like sous vide and stuff, you have to have a HACCP plan in place. But if you're using it just for kind of like just for that storage and sealing and things of that nature, you don't necessarily have to have a HACCP plan for it. Um, 
So when I was in American Indian, we used it a lot. We did a lot of sous vide. We did a lot of uh, different things of that nature because we're able to utilize it not only as a as a convenience item to be able to put stuff in the freezer in smaller packages, you know, any leftover fish you might have, you know, just things to make it that much easier for storage. But we we're actually then able to use it in the, in the cooking techniques and in the, in the processes. So, you know, in there, like if we were doing a, a duck breast off of, the, say, like a Northern Woodland Station, we could sous vide that duck breast sear it right before it went upstairs and then actually cut it and do an actual you know appetizer presentation off of it, just like you would do at a normal a la carte restaurant um so lo looking at it from that standpoint you know like you said you brought up like the stocks and soups to be able to seal the soup and then just drop it in you know drop it in a bag and whether you're doing a catering event or whatever and just drop it in some warm water just to get it back up the temp and then get it get it out to wherever it needs to go right you know you, your, your transportation so much easier you don't have to worry about spillage and everything else that goes along with that so Exactly. All the points we talk about in our training that little things about transporting product versus little buckets with lids that can fall off and leak. And right back, <laughs> back in the old days room. where they had the 12 things that wrap around it. It was <laughs> like, you know, you had to have you had to have like chef's knives just to cut the plastic wrap off right. to get the right. back open. Oh, catering trucks, the back of them always used to be such a mess from everything spilling <laughs> right. and vacuum packing just makes it so much easier. Such yeah. a neat tool. With staffing challenges, are you looking at any type of equipment that might help alleviate some of that, you know, like self-serve options or anything um, that, that you're so, looking at? Yeah, I mean, not so much from the equipment standpoint side. I think, you know, I, I kind of, you know, I get yelled at from my team a lot because I'm a very traditional chef that I like people to be able to cut and, you know, not, not do a lot of pre-portion and a lot of, you know, bring things in and use your knives and use your skills that we try to train people as. Um, but I think from the frontline perspective, definitely looking at, you know, where can we, where can, you know, where can I save that labor, not necessarily having an associate to serve somebody, uh, like a line chef serving, and I can pull that person into the back to be able to utilize them for prepping these and plus to get us ready to go for our next, you know, the next day's, you know, stuff. I mean, the, the, the challenges, obviously, you know, chefs have every day or, you know, how do we keep things fresh? How do we keep things new? And especially in a college university setting, it's really just what program do you put together that's not just the same old, you know, to, is it, you know, our pizza station just pizza every day? Or what do we do there to keep it fun and keep it exciting? And, you know, and then you deal with the, the challenges of a staff that has to go from making dough for a pizza service one day to doing like yesterday, we did empanadas on one of our stations. So my pizza guys were, were empanada chefs last night. You know? So it's a, it's it's taking those pieces and then figuring out how to really take and enhance the program and then utilize that staff that you have and hopefully train most of them up to be able to do the job that you're looking to get done at the end of the day. Hmm. All pieces of equipment like the vacuum pack we just talked about, you know, utilizing staff on, you know, the early part of the week to get prepped for the latter part of the week. Um preserving the quality of the food and keeping it separate. And in the cooler is another area, right, where sometimes, <laughs> you know, keeping things in vacuum bags is a, is a good thing in, in coolers because things can get uh, spilled and, yeah, it can be it can be a challenge. Right? Marinades, everything. You yes. know, it works out great for a lot of that kind of stuff. So it's nice, too, because it cuts that, 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 that time of marination down so where you don't have to do that 24 to 48-hour marinade. You can cut that down because of because of that vacuum sealing and things of that nature. So, yeah, no, I, 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 I breathe, live and breathe by them. I think every kitchen should have them, you know what I mean? I just think they're just a great tool for everybody to have and utilize, especially when done right. Right, exactly. No, we hear a lot of a lot of chefs have interest in them, but usually it's the HACCP that, that kind of yep. you know, people run up against. But really a HACCP plan is probably 
just doing what you normally do. It's just documenting it, right? It's just yeah. that simple. That's correct. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, coming back, <laughs> and you guys are at full capacity on campus, right? Students are back and everything. Yep. What was your biggest challenge to gear up for that? I mean, you're coming in in summer, right? Uh, right. And, and it's not like it's a new thing for you, but you know, it's a new place. There's lots of things that you have to evaluate. You know, there's lots of unique challenges. What has been one of your biggest challenges with with the students coming back full time and and trying to ramp up, re ramp up for them come coming back? I think you know some of the challenges is you know most of these kitchens or most kitchens right now you know this kitchen hadn't been run for 18 months so you know I think some of the challenges are coming back in you know, obviously overall cleanliness making sure if there's any product that was left that you're you're pretty much starting you're literally starting from scratch I mean I, I can tell you in all my years as a chef and, and opening a lot of properties and kind of doing a lot of different things in, in different industries you know within the food industry this was the first time that i literally had to sit down and go do an order every every spice or every herb or anything that you might not necessarily mm. think about from from that opening standpoint typically when you you know in in the corporate setting when you take over an account whether you know from an incumbent or from another another person you're walking in and there's still some inventory items things that are there that you just you know just inherited and but now because of that 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 break that we had None of that stuff was, was usable. So it was really coming back in, reopening and evaluating every piece of equipment. Wow. You know, redes- in, this, in this instance, we redesigned and, and kind of relayed out a whole new, a whole new servery area, and re- redesigned and laid out the back, back of the house kitchen area to kind of work for the program that we wanted to put together. Um, and then just dive into, you know, I mean, we're all dealing with it right now, which is, you know, supply chain shortages and things of that nature and figuring mm-hmm. out how, how do you work through those systems and, how do you put those plans in place to make sure that you know you have chicken because you know places not serving chicken is going to be a big trouble in any kind of school setting or yeah. most settings in, in general you know so it's 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 really kind of pushing through those 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 were the biggest challenges that we had hmm. yeah i'm sure there's like even things like filters and and seals and stuff like that 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 you don't normally think about that have just if they're not constantly used they they probably lose their effectiveness so you know so that's yep. yeah, a lot of things going on there. That's exactly. It. Getting back to the uh, the labor side of things, we know our industry can be a challenge for people, um, families, and, and the hours we work and the days and everything. So, are there anything? Is there anything that you're doing to try to entice people to your property versus another on the labor side? I mean, more benefits or more days off or flex schedules or. Is there anything that, I mean, I've seen so many different things that normally our industry wouldn't do, but yeah. we're having to right. do because we're <laughs> like eat for it. free, you know, that's, I've yeah. seen that one a lot, you know? Oh, yeah. it's more about time. It's more about hours that you work and, and so forth. And when we talked earlier about that whole moving the prep cycle, you know, are there off periods now where someone who wants to work days can, can just work days or, you know, how have you guys done anything different there to try to attract people? Yeah, I mean, I think flexibility is the key right now. I think, you know, obviously, you know, in, in a normal world, you know, somebody would come in and say, oh, I can't work this day or I need to, I need this day off. And, you know, we would look at them and say, hey, sorry, we can't help you. And now I think, you know, in the environment where we're in now, we're like, okay, how do we how do we make it work in the system we're doing? I think, you know, obviously, I think one of the, one of the things I think we did well in, in starting this was, you know, we wanted to make sure that we were fair and paying in our pay rates and what we were paying associates. So I think... You know, 
we're probably even within our in the, D, the DC market that we're in. I think we're we're probably paying a little higher than most, and I think that's going to be that attractive that incentive to really kind of get some some high quality people and, and maybe somebody that's happy in the position that they're in, but might have an opportunity here with us and, and really to grow. I think the other thing that we have that that is different than a lot of other chefs or a lot of other you know a lot of a lot of other food service companies is that. You know the amount of growth that we have within you know within this George Washington University space is you know is really tremendous, and I think that's been my biggest selling point to any potential chefs, cooks, you know, line servers, front of the house managers, anybody that that really has you know that has a good work ethic that wants to grow is that you know we're getting ready to you know right now we hire we have you know in this in this, on this campus I've got. You know, about 45 to 50 staff. I've got, you know, three or four salary managers. By next year, I'll have 250 more hourly staff. I'll have all the chefs and all the other managers that need to go along with it. So really using this as that incubator to, to take some of our, our people that we know are going to excel and use this as the training ground to push them up and then take somebody that has that potential that maybe is working somewhere else right now or maybe is not working and use that as that selling point to really get them on board and really grow our program and, and grow them as chefs and, and operators and you know culinarians and things of that nature. This isn't your your first uh, leadership position to move into, so I'm sure you have a formula for creating buy-in and trust with the with your associates that that you work with. Uh, what are some techniques you do or that you utilize so that you uh, can establish those those team building moments? That's the, that's the million dollar question. I wish I don't know if I have the real answer for that. <laughs> uh, you know, I think for me, I can tell you what I. I mean, I think for me, it's just about establishing relationships. You know, I think, you know, if you can establish relationships, especially early on with you know with new associates, with this existing associates, just with people in general, you know, I think that's where you start creating those bonds, and, and people tend to want to just do do a job that I think everybody wakes up every day to do a good job, to come in and do a good job at work. I don't think anybody wakes up every day going, I'm going to go in just to mess around today and get stuff done. I think everybody gets up to do it right. So I think establishing those relationships and just establishing precedence and say, hey guys, here's, you know, I have I can be leaning on a lot of things, but here's kind of those lines in the sands and they're making sure they kind of understand them and you're communicating through. Um, on a day-to-day basis, so whether it's you know dealing with a, you know a utility guy that's coming in, you know setting up a pot sink for me, or my executive chef that's running the operation, you know on a day-to-day basis, it's you know knowing who they are and what they are, and you know I think I approach everybody as you know everybody you can approach everybody a little differently. Some people you can come to them you know a little more firm, and you know that they're going to be okay. But then some people you got to back off a little bit, and you got to understand their situation and the situation at the time because every everyone's going to be a little bit different. How much time do you get to go in the kitchen now with your job? Is it uh, is it as much as you'd like, or with the labor shortage, are you kind of picking up a little bit of the slack there? Or normally, it's, how much would you, and how much are you doing it now? <laughs> so it's it's kind of a little bit of both. It depends on the day. <clears throat> you know, I would say I'm probably you know thirty percent in the kitchen. I'd love for it to be more, but I think you know I tell people all the time. I'm like the funny part of you know as you grow as a chef, everybody says you know you get into the culinary industry to. to to be behind the behind the line and cutting and cooking and chopping and the higher you grow the less you actually do any of that kind of stuff and it's more of that day-to-day managing and I, I also throw in the caveat that when 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 push comes to shove you better be able to get in there and do it or you're going to be in big trouble when that day comes right. so um <laughs> you know i think you know 
what I'm, you know, here I kind of, I'm a little more hands-on. Obviously, we've got the opportunity for us because this is our first dining hall. There's not, we're in the design phase of the next part. So in the next month or two, I'll start pulling out of here more to get more into the design and layout of the new new kitchens and stuff that we're building, um, menu works and, and fabrications and that kind of stuff. But it was here, it was nice because I'm able to get in and kind of really develop that program and really start to figure out how we we fine-tune it so now once we grow into that larger program we can take the opportunities and the successes from here and figure out how we morph them my i tell people like i my brain works differently in how i look at food i try to look at it most of my background obviously is you know hotels restaurants fine dining and things so i try to take everything from that from that and how do we make that work in in this you know in this setting so just because we're serving you know food off of a line doesn't mean that we can't make pizza from scratch or we can't do a fresh sauce from scratch or we can't you know we can't make empanadas or we can't do different things of that nature so it's it's just figuring out how how we put those, those procedures in place and there's processes in place to make sure that you can be successful at at doing it on a daily basis you know where do you start in the design process and and how do you work with with design firms and really taking a vision for a space and, and creating something that um, that you really would like to see? So I think, you know, obviously in a perfect world, it starts in the very beginning, you know, looking at, you know, a blank footprint and saying, okay, here's, here's what we have. Um, the, some of it is dictated, obviously, in our world by our clients, you know, and then also by our corporate teams, because obviously... You know, I'm not involved in a lot of the day-to-day stuff that goes on. So when I, so when we get involved into typically presentations have already been made, you know, kind of deals have already been signed, and there's some expectations that are set. You know, obviously within within our within our corporate world and within our clients' world. So it's really then taking those ideas and figuring out then how do we how do we get the best of both worlds out of it. And again, like I said, from my mind, it's looking at it like okay, you know, if we've sold a you know an Italian or a pizza station, how do we how do we then take that and make it the best pizza station or the best kind of Italian kind of concept that we can put together, whether it's taking an existing con- construct that we have within our organization and then figuring out how we work within our parameters of our corporate world to make it work and that's going to give me the best of what I want to present to the students and to our client or, you know, looking at it from the outside point and saying, hey, these are great ideas. What if we went this route and then we, you know, we look at whether it's circling back with our client or with our team or our marketing team, you know, because obviously, you know, culinary is one piece of, you know, the entire operation. You know, obviously it's in, in our world, it's a large front forward facing piece, but there's, there's a huge marketing piece behind it. There's a branding piece, you know, so there's so much other stuff that goes into it. It's kind of figuring out how does, how does, how does all that tie together? So when you have an idea, a thought on, say, your Italian station, you're free more or less to implement any new item you want on that station or is there is there any guidelines or, or restrictions based on you by the client or is it totally up to you to design the menu that you want to run from the Italian station so yeah I mean so the from the client side of things you know, they just want they want the best pr- program out there and they want you know obviously they're working on positive feedback from the students so you know, from from our standpoint, we want to be able to kind of understand our clients, just like any chef would, or any you know, any culinary or any operator would, um, and put together something that's going to work in there. And then, but then from a menuing standpoint, yeah, I mean, we we have a a menu based system that we work off of, and we work kind of you, you know the good and bad of it in the, in the corporate world. So we we work within the parameters of what that is. Um, 
and some things we, we kind of have to tweak a little bit and then are some things we work with our corporate team and with our with our you know my corporate chefs and different things like that to then figure out how we redesign some of these programs that want to work to what I'm looking for at the end so it's kind of like a it's a that's a you know a trick question for us but you I think as a chef and a culinarian you figure out how to work within parameters that you're, you're given and then you can you can still put that program that works together for you so you know, for an example, empanadas is not necessarily something that we would necessarily maybe have in our database, but we can find something that's similar so we can get nutritionals, we can make sure we have all the stuff that we need to have from, from that standpoint, and then maybe deconstruct the menu that works that works to you where we need to be. So it still has an empanada dough, it has the fillings and stuff we need, we can put that together and make sure that we have everything that we need to go with it. Right, that's kind of where I was going with, like, the nutritional aspect of it. Do you have to live within the parameters of certain nutritional aspects in each station or is it as long as it's italian it's good <laughs> now nah, so we have to, so yeah so we have to list nutritionals out for every yeah. every item that we use and obviously i think um you know if it's something that goes out i think it, i think the rules have changed a little bit but i forget what the, the actual is but how you know if it's run more than once a month or once in a 60-day cycle then you have to you gotta have nutritionals and and us as you know, in, in, in the, the industry we're in right now within higher education, obviously, you know, nutritionals is such a huge piece to what, you know, our student body's looking for, what our clients are looking for, because, you know, people, people want to know what they're eating anymore these days. So we have, our database actually ties into recipes that the student can pull back and look, um, pull up actual, that recipe to see if there's, you know, one, maybe there's an allergen, maybe there's you know, something they can't have or don't, you know, just, just don't like for some reason. Um, but then they can actually see what's actually in it and then look at the nutritionals that go along with it as well. You know, especially when you get into like a lot of the athletics and different things like that where they're really trying to gear their diet to a certain amount of protein in a day and different things of that nature. So. Speaking along those lines, um, this, the sourcing of those ingredients, you know, being in, in uh, the area that you are, we've talked to lots of different uh, higher ed chefs uh, with great access to local ingredients and what sort of things are you doing in that area? Uh, are you doing any uh, local sourcing of ingredients? And uh, are you uh, paying attention to to the carbon footprint and, and letting the students know that, hey, we're, we're being as res- responsible as we are or as we, ca- we can be? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously this day and age, it's, it's super important, not only from a from a student standpoint, but a client standpoint as well. I mean, you make clients and, you know, you look at the buildings that are being built now with the green buildings and, you know, every, everything looking to be, you know, LEED certified and things along that nature. So obviously, you know, Compass Group chart wells were very big at that, you know, looking at local sourcing for, uh, you know, where can we get you know, our produce from, where can we source you know, whether it's even bakery items and then partnering with some local companies as well. So we do a lot with local restaurants and, and different programs like that. So we can bring in some local restaurants and, and bring in those partnerships, uh, you know, looking at some different coffee roasters that are local to the area and then how do we partner with them and really kind of build those relationships because it's about obviously not just us, but it's about that community relationship and figuring out how we make those communities work within the area that we're in. Um, and then, you know, we list out, we do a lot with like local farms and listing where items come from, from farms, looking at different farmers markets and, and really kind of just working on that, that sustainability aspect from that point as well. Looking at our, our fishmongers and, you know, working with the Monterey Bay Aquarium, Monterey Bay Aquarium Watts list, different things of that nature really just to make sure that we're, we're trying to be the best stewards of the environment and the product that we're using on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. 
You said fish, and you have a fantastic fish story. Right. <laughs> and uh, for for our listeners who aren't aware of it, um, would you mind telling us a little bit about um, about your catfish story and and some things that you did to uh, to combat an invasive species? Yeah. So you know, it's it, the cool thing about you know the Chesapeake region that we're in is we've got so you know we've got you know the just the, the our backyard is is pretty much anything and everything you want as far as you know with water salt water stuff um one of the things that i you know i got into early on was uh was chesapeake blue catfish chesapeake blue catfish is a a you know it's a typical type catfish but it's an invasive species type catfish in the chesapeake region um it was introduced i forget i forget how many years ago but for, for a little while now and it's really become one of those there's the truly invasive species that are just just demolishing the 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 ecostructure in the bay area so eating you know whether it's striped bass eating crab eating anything else that might be going up in these estuaries um and then so we've worked with uh, a lot of our local fishmongers to really kind of to bring those populations down and really utilize those as much as we can on our menu and then talk about what that is and what it's doing and how that's helping the environment and helping these eco the, the eco structure in the bay and in, in the tributaries around it kind of utilizing that, that fish and it's great fish by the way I mean, it tastes absolutely amazing so that's even better where is it native to i believe it's an asian species okay um, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure it was an Asian Asian species that, you know, obviously kind of like the snakehead stuff that got introduced and then it's kind of just really started to take over and take hold in the area. Okay, interesting. Just that, do you, when you looked at that fish and how to use it creatively, did you look at natively how they use it and try to, I'm assuming not, but, uh, or did you look at how you would prepare fish in your region so it would be familiar to your diners? Yeah, I think so. Typically, like for that one, it, it's really more of looking at, you know, what, how it would be used in, in the region. How, what does it work well with? You know, obviously it's a, you know, it's a firm fish. Does it grill well? Is it, you know, is it, you know, it's a great fish for doing like fried. Obviously we were doing catfish sliders, um, you know, like a tempura fried catfish slider at Georgetown. So there's a lot of different things that we've done with it, but it, it's really just kind of looking at the versatility of it and how we can, we can incorporate it into as many different items as we can to really be able to utilize it and you know, take that population down. Has has your efforts had an impact on their numbers? Have, have you seen anything from like DNR that says, hey, like, keep it up. You're doing great work. We're seeing a rebound in some of the species that they're feeding on. I haven't specifically seen anything on it. I know just in talking with a lot of chefs and with our fishmongers, I think it definitely has made it, it made an improvement in it. I don't know what those those direct improvements would be, but I know you know just in general conversations, obviously you know there, there's there's it's it's definitely helped. And I think you know every time you can pull one or two or three out of the water, it's you know you no matter what, I think you're helping you're helping those tributaries and helping those areas out no matter what. So have fishermen started to catch on as the price form started to go up, you know, like, hey, this is more valuable fish that, that people are wanting, um, just to increase interest in in the fishermen going form specifically? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's like everything else, you know, you see, I, I, it definitely, price has definitely gone up. <laughs> so, um, you know, but the nice thing is it's still, I think, because of what the, you know, what our fishmongers are doing and what our fishermen are doing, you know, it's still a very reasonably priced fish in the sense of, you know, they want people to be able to purchase it and they want to use it as a, as a secondary alternative. So this way people are buying it to, to, mm. to help reduce those populations. Is there an organization or how did, how did you become aware of, of this species that 
you needed or you wanted to look at a way to use it? Is there is there an organization that deals with this, trying to turn things like that into food sources, or did, is this just something you kind of took it upon yourself to go do with the catfish? So it really kind of came a lot of our, you know, just in, in having conversations with our vendors and our and our fishmongers and stuff like that, and you know them kind of saying, hey, you know, we've got we've got you know we've got some stuff that we're working on. Would you be interested in helping us out and talking about it? And then you know, and then just kind of taking it and kind of running with it. So it's kind of a little bit of both, um, but a lot of it is just that you know that interaction with your with, with your fishmongers or your vendors or your produce vendors and different things of that nature. And then some of it is just getting out, you know, looking where those food trends are and how do we put something together that's that's different and unique. You know, obviously, you know. Maybe we'll get to the point where we do crickets and stuff like that, and get on, get going into the different protein sources. But yeah, yeah looking at those on a day to day basis. It's it's all about that creative rebranding of an item, you know. It's right. going exactly. on for when something gets overfished, you find something with the with the terrible name, and then you just give it a new name, and you know, all yeah, exactly. of a sudden you're, you're charging way too much for it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Well, we talked about but, that, I think, uh, in the beginning of the show, right, Justin? That was, I don't know if we oh, yeah. recorded that part or not. But. No, no, yeah, we were talking with Nate about, uh, was it the Orange Ruffy? Orange Ruffy. Yeah. <laughs> right. was, was, was it a slime head or something yep. like that? Yep. <laughs> and then uh, the other one was Hokey, was a uh-huh. fish that, no one was eating Hokey, so we called it uh, New Zealand whitefish, and boy, it sold like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, just rename and call it something else. It's all good, that's right? right? Yeah, that's right. You know, Chef, we we dove in pretty hard this morning on um, on the the job and your experiences and the, the relationship that you have with your clients and so forth. But um, one area I always find interesting when we talk to chefs is, you know, how did you get your start? Where where did culinary come into your life? Was it uh, at a very young age you knew this is what you wanted to do, or was it? Uh, 16 years old, you found a job in a restaurant because you needed a job, kind of, and worked up in the progression. Or where did, how did it start for you? Yeah, so I think you know, I kind of fell into it, and I think it's one of those. I tell people it's a, it's one of those careers that you know, you know, you you have to have a passion for and a love for, and if you don't, you know, you're not gonna you're not, you're not gonna do very well at it. Um, I think you know, I could say mine. I credit a lot of it back to my mom. She was a phenomenal cook a phenomenal never a chef but she was she cooked every meal from scratch you know and running around the kitchen helping her and baking and doing things like that um you know as i went through high school i decided you know started working in some kitchens and doing some things of that nature and really thought i had something there that i I enjoyed every day and you know getting out of high school i took about a year off and you know trying to figure out what life was going to be i worked outside for a tree company trimming trees for about a year and i was like yeah i can't do this for the rest of my life so let's start figuring out something better and culinary school is where i landed and then uh you know i think you know this, i've been fortunate in, in where i've been in my career i've been lucky enough to be at the right place at the right time you know i think a lot of what we do in life is just being being at the right place at the right time and then meeting the right people and then kind of letting things roll where they roll you know absolutely yep oh, very good it's all about those mentors do you have do you have one person that uh, really stands out early in in your uh, food service experience that that maybe helps sway you into pursuing uh, this as a lifelong profession yeah I think you know there's a, uh, an older gentleman that I work with uh, you know one of my first culinary jobs and an older older Asian man 
he'd worked for this one company for probably, I think he was going on 32 years. He was kind of like their prep production guy. He literally did all their mise en place and everything for him in the morning. Uh, name was Tony. I'm mean, just a phenomenal guy. And I, I think I kind of credit a lot to him, just his worth ethic, how, how he was just very meticulous and clean and just came in and just set the tone and really kind of just went through the day. I mean, I would probably say if, if I had somebody that I looked up to in the culinary world from, you know, starting out early and young, he was probably one of the ones I think that set that kind of tone for me and really put me where I'm at now. Hmm. I bet that that Mise Place was is probably pretty evident today. You have that same expectation of all of your chefs and all of your staff, you know, it's like, hey, let, let's uh, make sure that everything is where it needs to be so that... Yep, I still walk through the cooler every morning, you know, and I'm, I pull my chef in every day, and we look at we look at things that we, we've got areas for improvement and opportunities to grow, and then, you know, and then obviously commend on the things that they're doing well and the improvements that they're making in the day to day because it's it's a grow it's you grow every day. You know, I, I tell people, uh, you know, you know, 20 plus years of being being in the industry now, I, I, I grow every day. I learn something new every day, and I try to teach something new to somebody every day. Well, I'm yeah, and I'm certain that you have taken on that mentorship role for a lot of people. Do you have any uh, standouts uh, throughout your career that are there where they really excelled and they've gone on to greater things? So I can tell you like a few, I have one lady, young lady I hired here as a sous chef. Uh, she worked for me about 17 years ago at the Smithsonian's, uh, probably one of the first hires ever. She came very green, you know, worked for me on a pizza station at this one of the Smithsonian accounts. And, uh, you know, brought her in as a sous chef here to promote her too when we, we open up one of the new accounts as an executive chef and you know so I think that's you know those are the success stories that you know you can look back on and you know she's a phenomenal chef she's a great culinarian you know somebody that wasn't classically trained but really just took the passion and took the bull by the horns and really ran with it um, so I, I would say that's probably something that, and I get to see her now on a daily basis which is pretty awesome mm, that is awesome it's a classic uh Hire the personality, train the skills, right? You right. Got somebody right. like that that uh, you can you can mentor, and and they'll take it, and they're the right person, right? Well, that's a fun Especially stuff of our job. Age. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. But that is that's hospitality. It really is. You know, our industry. You get close to people, and you have that chance to work hand in hand, and um, take those people under your wing and, and bring them along. That's kind of the trademark of our industry. A lot of people. That's how we we get to where we are, right? Somebody yep. took us under their our, their wing and helped us along. That's it. You know, I think everybody can kind of look at what they do and and bring experiences together. And and some people, I think, can kind of look at like a certain aspect of the the operation that they feel they're really good at. Like if someone were to say, "Do you want to talk about any part of your organization? Uh, what is it? Something that you feel you really could speak as an expert or?" very um, knowledgeable source on is there something like that that you have where you think you're really good at um, this one aspect of culinary or one aspect of managing a kitchen or people yeah i I mean i think you know we we touched base on it just a little bit earlier but i think it's really you know i think what i've prided myself on and what i think i've been very fortunate to be able to do and i'm not sure if it's you know if it's something i do necessarily better or worse than anybody else it's just it's really finding that that niche within a person and figuring out how to bring out the best of that person and bring out the ability of that person and really take them to the next level. You know, we talked a lot about, you know, you know, growing and mentoring and things of that nature. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm able to make those connections with some of my staff and really say, 
take somebody that, you know, in a different environment would probably be good and, and probably still do a decent job, but maybe wouldn't make it quite to the level of where I think they were able to get with working with me and with, with the development and the plans that I put together. And I think some of it goes into just kind of the day-to-day -day interactions, you know, kind of setting expectations and managing those expectations. Some of them to my detriment because I think I, I am... Because of that, I think people put a lot of pressure on themselves to make sure that they stand up to what I what my expectations are, and when they're not, they feel like they're letting me down, which is then letting themselves down. So, I think for me, it's really just developing that person and, and really setting those bars, and then, but hopefully not putting too much pressure on that individual person to where, you know, it's not a detriment to them, and they're growing from from it. You know what I mean? And learning. And understanding that day-to-day -day operations and then what's the next step now how do we take that baby step like you know receiver for example that maybe is just receiving product for you and how do you grow that person into being a purchaser and understanding how to learn that back-of-the-house computer the mentality of the hassle really rotating first in first out and then dealing with you know we talked about coolers in the day-to-day you know disruptions of cooks going in and just dropping stuff at the first empty shelf they see and and having to deal with them there's there's internal frustrations of not being able to keep it as clean as that I might want it or the expectation has been pushed onto them. So I think those are some of the things that I think I've been able to really excel at and take people that, like I said, maybe would have done, probably do well in a, in a normal setting, but have been able to grow into more within their career and with their, within their opportunities for themselves. Hmm. Yeah, no, that takes a skill to be able to look at people and um, t t I don't say read them, but you, you kind of read people. You, you understand who's driven by what and you kind of can help them excel at areas that uh, you can have some experience and influence on them, understanding, and bring them along, right? Bring them in the industry. Very good. All right. Well, Chef, I thank you again for joining us today. We really appreciate it and had a great time talking to you. I, I, I know that um, we talked a little bit about the, the person that you feel affected your career, but is do you have anything like a, a quote or um, saying or anything that someone has has mentioned to you throughout your career or that you've read that influences you or something you could share with our guests. We always like to get something like that from every guest that we have here on the feed. Yeah, so I, I have one that I kind of use as a little go-to quote for mine. It's actually, uh, I stole it from Paul Perdome, so I'm not going to, I'll give him the credit, but I said, you know, I tell everybody that you don't have to have a silver spoon to eat good food. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a true, no truer statement could be said, right. you know. Nope, that nope. is true, yeah. Paul Prudhomme. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. Again, thank you for, for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate it. Your, your insights into you know, what you're doing, helping us understand your industry a little bit better. Uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Appreciate it. All right. Best of luck to you. And thanks, everybody. Take care. No problem. Thank you. It was great meeting everybody. Okay, Justin. Well, we learned a little bit about what we had some questions about. That was good. Great yeah. interview, right? Uh, yeah. I liked how we hit the ground running. I mean, it was just like, bam, right yeah. at no chance well, to you, think. We're just we're just punching it in the face. <laughs> you dove in hard right in the beginning. It was good. Well, I'm glad you brought it back around to uh, to answer the question of uh, you know where you got your start and everything because uh, mm -hmm. I, I think uh, I think that's another nickel on the pile though. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> starting no, early, no. you know, and. Just finding the right mentor to, to, to push you along your career. Yeah, like I said, I always like hearing about uh, the chefs and where they start from. And then I also like when we get to Nate, who is our, uh, Nate's with our team, and Nate does a great job of being able to 
tell us everything about the show that, you know, we get so involved in the, in the questions and listening to our guests that sometimes it's hard to summarize at the end, but Nate does a great job. So we're throwing it out to Nate. Nate, bring us home. Thanks, Rich. Your summary. It was yeah. a great episode. Lots of solid stuff there. And I think that it's been mentioned before on this show, but it's what uh, one of the big takeaways we've learned putting this podcast together is that there's a certain set of skills and beliefs and processes that really carry most of our food service guests through their careers. And that's really what we saw with Richard. He's just a solid chef, period. He would be a solid chef a lot of places because he just has such an understanding and, and philosophy that would carry him in a bunch of, and has carried him in a bunch of different settings. I liked how he spoke about efficiency and just thinking about, you know, even though he is the kind of guy who wants people cutting and chopping and doing knife work and things of that nature, there are still efficiencies to be gained with things like the vacuum sealers and, and, and just planning in general, doing things in a way that makes sense in a methodical manner that really make those methods really just make life easier for his staff and, and ensure quality food service. And I thought that was a great theme. I loved his belief in people. This is a people business, but taking care of the people who work for you, being willing to mentor the people who work for you and understanding that they can be great assets if nurtured and developed correctly and, and wanting to make his team a place where people want to come to work and his, his overall outlook on no one comes to work to screw around. You know, you, the people on his team, show up every day wanting to do things right and wanting to do things well. And he tries to be a, a manager of, of that, a facilitator of people who just want to come and do their best work and put together a quality product. And he kind of walked us through how he does that, but just lots of good advice, lots of great perspective. And he's just a solid, solid chef. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up again with the, uh, the people in his organization. He, he really, I don't know if you caught it or not when he said something about it toward the end there where he said something that um, chef wants to walk in the cooler and just drop something on an open shelf. You know, if, if you, if you've got a system and you want to put things in the right place, everyone's got to adhere to that. So he, he seems like a, a real chill kind of guy, but boy, he, he's got an organization. He wants things done a certain way and that's, that's what you have to be. Well, that's you his know, job. He, he, uh, he established those, those lines in the sand right in the beginning. He's like, yeah. Hey, we're pretty flexible on a lot of things, but, uh, don't cross this line. You know, this is, yeah, we'll have problems. You know, you, you get that sense, which I think is, is great to, to establish and communicate right in the beginning, you know? And I feel like, uh, that, you know, everything in its place is one of those lines, you know, that, that, and, and you can tell that because that's something that he learned early on in his, his life and his career. And, and I think, uh, I think Rich, that you can, you can share that mentality with him. You're very much uh, the, the same in the fact that, Hey, everything has its place and let's, let's put it back. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, thanks, Nate. Uh, great job again. We're bringing it all together for us. Appreciate it very much. Justin, uh, as we wrap this one up, anything from you? Yeah, as always, I would like to remind each and every one of you to please hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss another episode with a chef or food service industry professional again. And while you're at it, if you take a moment and share this with other people who you think would find value in the conversations that we have here. Very good. And as always, everybody, just uh, if you have any thoughts... You can reach out to us at volrathfoodservice.com slash the feed and let us know what you're thinking or ideas that you may have for the show. We appreciate it very much. 
And back to, I guess, your comment, Justin. You're right. I, I like things a certain way. And part of the things that drive me is one of the things my dad used to always say is, if you do everything as if a customer were watching you, you'd know you'd be doing it right. Thanks, everybody, for listening today. Have a great week ahead. Until next time, take care.